If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to the book of Acts. And uh, this morning we will be finishing uh, our time in Acts for a little while. Uh, we've been back and forth in it for a course of two or three years, and we just come back to it for 10, 12 weeks and then take a break. And we have found ourselves now at the end of Paul's first missionary journey. And that seemed to me as a good place to stop. And then we'll pick up the book maybe sometime in the summer and go through another a number of verses as we look at Paul's second missionary journey, but um, we just need to step back from that for a little while, and uh, today we'll conclude that. So if you have your Bibles, uh, Acts chapter 14, if you don't have a Bible, as we have told you before, uh, well, maybe you, this is, you're new, we have Bibles under the seats, and you're welcome to use one of those Bibles, and if you don't own one, you're welcome to take that home, and uh, then you have a Bible and you can start reading this word that, um, that we find so critical to our lives. So Acts chapter 14, and I want to read from verse 21 to the end of the chapter. And this is the end of his missionary journey. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Persia, they came to Athalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. Thank you, Father, for uh, this, your word. Thank you for our time uh, together in it now uh, this morning. Thank you that, as we know from the book of Hebrews, this is a living word. It is unlike any other book that we can read. It is unlike any other words that we can hear. For there is power in these words. There is power to transform. There is power to protect. There is power to give hope. There is the enduring reality that they are eternal words, that the words that are reflected on these pages are the words of an eternal God, and therefore they have an eternal nature. So, Father, what we talk about today will be the same in a hundred years, in a thousand years, into eternity, because they are your words. So, guide us, I pray. Teach us, I pray. Help us understand a little bit more of your way in our world and in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to Acts chapter 14, as I mentioned, it's the end of Paul's first missionary journey. And it ends in a rather strange way because they retrace their steps. I remember as a, uh, well, almost every other time that I go to Victoria, where I spent a significant part of my growing up years, I retrace my steps. I will go to the house that we lived in, which is still there on Trutch Street. I will often drive by my elementary school, which is Sir James Douglas Elementary School. And if I have time, I will drive down into Beacon Hill Park, where I spent hours as a young boy building forts to have rock fights and spying on lovers that were in the bushes and um, doing all kinds of things that little boys will do when they're nine, ten years old and when you could entrust them to go for the day and not worry where they were. But I still do that, and there's fond memories that come from tracing my footsteps. As it... <laughs> That just went over my head, so 
I'm sure somebody will send me an email. <laughs> but um, moving on, um, it's not difficult to follow back on positive influences in your life. But it's more difficult to retrace difficult footsteps. And in fact, I think for some, some have never been able to retrace steps that are laden with pain and suffering. Some have taken those journeys and you have found it healing. But it's much easier to retrace, retrace good steps than it is bad steps. As we come to this book, we are immediately hit with something which I find fairly strange. Because we read here that these men and their little band that was with them returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, verse 21 tells us. Our memories may be short, so let me refresh them for you. In Lystra, Paul had been stoned and left for dead. In Iconium, as a response to the preaching of the word of God, there had been great division amongst the town, and people had been stirred up to mistreat them physically. And then there was Antioch, where there had been such great division, and again, that the crowds had been stirred up to persecute them and drive them out of the city. The first thing that comes to my mind is, what are you guys thinking? It's only months later, and now you are retracing your steps and going right back into those very towns in which you were left for dead in one of them, and you had been mistreated in all the rest. I think uh, they might have been gluttons for punishment. Some might say today that they just had a desire to be martyred. There were options, of course. They could have taken a different route back to Antioch and Syria. They could have gone further east, hopped on a boat and sailed the ocean and had a nice Mediterranean cruise and ended up back at Antioch. They could have um, done another thing, as you know, Paul sent letters. And so there must have been one in their traveling band who nobody would recognize. And Paul and Barnabas could say, you know, we've got a few things that we um, want to write down and say to these communities. So we'd like you to take these letters back to them. Or they could have appointed somebody to go in their place and rather than even deliver a letter, speak words on their behalf. There was any number, of, any number of options they had rather than the physical option of retracing their footsteps and physically going back into each one of these towns. But I think the apostles understood something that we maybe understand instinctively but sometimes need to be reminded of. And that is that sometimes emotions do get the better of us. After some time of separation, after some time of letting the dust settle, after some time even of allowing us to forget certain things, the tide changes. And the emotion that was stirred up and the emotion that drew us into, into hype and into, into jumping on bandwagons and getting involved in mob scenes, that begins to dissipate and we get on with our lives. Most people would have forgotten who Paul and Barnabas were. After all, these were fairly large centers that they had been in. And so they probably wouldn't have been even recognized as they came back into their towns. And so it would have been safe for them to return. It's not unlike uh, crises that hit. We had the crisis in Peachland just this past week or so. And as the forest fires were raging in that community, they uh, evacuated certain people and they sent them out. And they said, this is too dangerous for, for you to be right here right now. Once the fire is under control or moves on, you'll be able to come back home. And so the crisis is averted and they come back home. We see that with lots of weather events, that as the weather events come, people leave. When the weather events finish, people return. 
It's no different with human emotions. And so I think Paul and Barnabas understood that now there had been two, three, four months that had passed and people would have been back to life, back to normal and thinking more clearly. I think another thing, though, that motivated them to come back into these cities and to retrace their footsteps was they understand that maturity doesn't just happen. Remember, we're talking about spiritual issues here. And they had gone in those three towns and they had preached the word of God and there had been an overwhelming response. It says that many people, large numbers, had come to faith in Christ. As you read through the scriptures, you will find that there is often a correlation between physical maturity and spiritual maturity. I think almost all of us here would understand that after a baby is born and into its first number of months, actually, the baby doesn't never go away. I've got 27-year-old babies. But, um, but if you were to leave them alone after the first number of months of being born, how well would they do? How would they fend for themselves? Would they be able to crawl over to the refrigerator and pull out some food and put some cans from the hamper or from the food hamper and uh, stir up some stew or something? Unless we live in the world of Jungle Book, we understand that no infant under normal circumstances would be able to survive being left alone. The same is true in the spiritual world, loved ones. It's irresponsible of us to lead somebody to Christ and then never have anything to do with them again. And in this situation, they had seen so many people come to faith in Christ that they felt an obligation to go back now and to nurture them. And to build them up. We find in scripture, sometimes uh, Christians are referred to as babes in Christ. And all they can handle is the pure milk of the word of God. And then people mature and they grow and they can handle more difficult things and more difficult subjects. And then they become adults as the scripture tells them. And then they are able to handle the tough doctrines of scripture. And so we understand spiritually that there is this maturation process that takes place. And it doesn't happen on its own. It happens as people invest their lives in us so that we might grow to maturity. So they recognized that there had all these new believers that had, been cre- uh, that had been born in these three towns and they needed to go back and see them grow in their faith. As they come back, though, there's two things that Luke records, which I, I find are fascinating and very helpful for us as a church. And I think for me, just as a pastor and as an individual person, two things that, they, that drive them in their trip back as they retrace their steps. Their steps. The first is a pastoral concern. They, they understood that people need to be cared for. We understand the theme in Scripture of a shepherd. We are familiar with Psalm 23 about God who so carefully shepherds us as his people. We understand from John chapter 10 the beautiful words there of Jesus that I am the good shepherd and, and how he protects us and provides for us and cares for us. We understand that leadership in the church is to give care over the flock that God has entrusted them to. That they are to shepherd the people around them as a shepherd shepherds their sheep. And so we understand that people need to be cared for, protected, and provided for. So there is a very real pastoral concern that is demonstrated here. And it comes out in a couple of ways. First of all, it comes out because of this. Christian living wears us down, but Christian words build us up. One of the things that they did is they came into this community as they recognized that they needed to strengthen the souls of these disciples. That's what Luke says. They came back strengthening the souls of the disciples. That doesn't mean they were just worried about the the, the inner stuff. 
that word soul is sometimes translated life. It's sometimes translated mind. It just means they were concerned about the people. And they needed to strengthen them. We read in, in a number of places that this is their practice. Acts 18.23 says, After spending some time, there, some time there, Paul departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Persia, strengthening all of the disciples. Why? Because Christian living wears us down. There are mental attacks that we face. As the scripture says, in the last days, mockers will come. There are these mental attacks that every single one of us face every single day. And those kinds of things, if left to ourselves, they will beat us up. There are also, though, the moral attacks that we face. Some of them we bring on ourselves by the things that we watch and the things that we read. Some of them come upon us because of the schools that we go to and the teachers that we have. Some of it comes from the bosses that we have and the workplaces that we're involved in and the things that they ask us to do which go against and offend our sensibilities and what we know is right and wrong. Sometimes there are the, uh, the attacks that come from us spiritually, the spiritual struggles that we face, the strains of living in a family. Sadly, but truly, Christian living wears us down. We just get plumb beat up. And so, if Christian living bears us down, what will build us up? I think Christian words. Words of encouragement. As a side note, though, I need to say this, because we need to hear it again and again as God's people. Sadly, too often, we could say that Christian words wear us down. When we speak mistruths, when we share gossip, when we talk in innuendo, when we speak things that are confidential, when we ridicule and rebuke, when we're harsh rather than kind, sometimes and often, too often, it's Christian words that wear us down. Loved ones, it ought not to be that way. The Word of God is so clear that Christian words ought to build us up and strengthen us, and encourage us. And the old saying that I heard so many times, if you don't have anything good to say, say a lot. <laughs> no, you all know it. Don't say anything at all. And so, when, they, when we get beat up from following Christ, we need people to gather around us and encourage us in the things of the Lord. We need people to come around us and say, Stand! You can do it. You can make it. I'll be with you. I'll be praying for you. Other times we need to be reminded of the promises of Scripture. When we start to fade and when we start to doubt, we need somebody to come along and say, But no, you've been standing on this promise. Don't step down now. Don't give up now. We need to understand that there are warnings and that there are reminders. We need to hear sometimes when we're facing tough times that there's Scripture says, don't be surprised when troubles come, as though some strange thing is happening to you. That's to be expected. That's normal. We need people who will come beside us when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And they will say, we need to speak hope to you. We want you to know that, yes, you're deep in grief, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We need people to come alongside of us when we walk through times when great evil falls on us. And we need to have those people who say, you know, evil will come, but God is able to take evil and to turn it into good purposes. Don't give up. Don't walk away. You get the picture, loved ones? 
we need to strengthen one another's souls. And so as they came back into those cities, that's what they did. The second thing, though, that you read is that they came along and they encouraged them in the faith. Loved ones, the faith is the main thing. What he's talking about here is not the subjective faith that we all have and continue to have where we put our faith in Jesus Christ. He is talking here about the objective faith, the gospel truth that we hold strong. There are many things that come into this. We've heard it in the sermons. They talk about God and we sung about it. God who is the creator. God who has made the heavens and the earth. God who is to be worshipped. We talk about uh, Christ and and the fact that he was... um, fully man and fully God. We talk about the fact that he had to live and die and that he would be buried and then he would be raised from the the dead for our salvation. We talk about the Holy Spirit. We talk about the natures of scriptures. We talk about the great doctrines of the faith. That is the faith. And you need to know, if you don't already know, that our faith is also under constant attack. I don't know about you, but there's probably not a day that goes by where I don't read something, hear something, see something that is an attack on what I believe. That undermines something that I've been thinking about in the word of God. And so to encourage here means to implore, it means to beseech, it means to speak with persistence. You know, there are times when I go to the Lord in prayer and at the end of the week that prayer hasn't been answered and there's a little voice that sits on my shoulder and says, what are you praying for? God doesn't hear God's not interested in you. He's got bigger things that he's worried about. Or there's times when I have expectations of God and they don't come through and I get upset with God and I question God's love and his care and his trust in my life. It's because I don't know God well enough. I don't understand his character deep enough. I haven't thought longly or long enough about him. But there are these internal attacks that come from within that undermine our faith. And then there's all the external attacks that come to our faith. There's books and there's the media and there's the conversations that we have around the the water cooler or the lunch table or the recess where people say, you know, those Christians, they believe this. They're a bunch of goofballs. Or, you know, they believe in this guy that was raised from the dead. Or they believe he's coming back. Or they believe that there's only one God. Or they believe that you should live a certain way. They believe that you shouldn't support abortion. They believe that you... And it goes on and on and on. Loved ones, I get emails on a regular basis and phone calls, which I love and appreciate from you who read stuff and say, what's going on here? Is this true? How do I respond to this? My friend asked me this. My colleague spoke to me about that. And, it, and I'm questioning it. And, and I don't really know if what I believe is true. Loved ones, there is an external attack upon the faith. We need to encourage one another in the faith. I read, and you can do this on your own, just a number of um, uh, different references to the faith in the New Testament. Listen to the diversity of comments. And if this shouldn't help us understand that we need to encourage one another in the faith, then there's something wrong. Paul says, be obedient to the faith. Don't turn away from the faith. Continue in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Strive for the unity of the faith. Become established in the faith. Don't depart or wander away from the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. Contend for the faith. Make progress in the joy and, uh, of the faith. You understand that faith is not static. The faith is something we're always growing in, always understanding, that's always under attack. So, loved ones, 
We need to about, be about encouraging one another in the faith. And I wonder if this third point is not what was sort of cropping up and which, which undergirded both of these things because it says that, and after he said that, he says, because through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is probably not something that you woke up thinking you'd hear today, but you're going to hear it anyhow. Tribulation is a necessity of the Christian life. Paul had no illusions about the cost of following Jesus Christ. He knew that this world is hard and unfair and that it is a starry-eyed fantasy to be thinking that we will sail through it without a hitch. He also knew how Christians can become through bad experiences. Later, he would write to Timothy and he would say, You know, Timothy, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconum, Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Then he honestly and realistically sketched out for all time what real Christians can look forward to in this world. Now brace yourself. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what you can look forward to. In fact... Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Don't miss that point, loved ones. It doesn't mean that, it's not a reference to you're going to get sick or your car is going to break down or you're going to lose your job as natural processes of losing jobs. What he means is that As a Christian, you will be persecuted and you will face tribulation because you are a follower of Christ. There will be distress, suffering, persecution, hardship, affliction, trouble that is a direct result of being a follower of Jesus Christ. It can happen in preschool. To a little boy or a little girl who puts their lunch on their table and bows their head and prays and gets persecuted by the other kids around them. It can happen in elementary school, in middle school, in high school. It can happen at university as you stand up for something you believe in biology or in ethics. It can happen to you in the workplace as you are asked to do something that is clearly illegal or unbiblical and you say, no, you won't do it. It can happen around the dinner table as you stand for the faith and you get ridiculed and attacked. Sometimes it's verbal. Sometimes it's physical. And as the Bible clearly says, sometimes it may mean your life. But tribulation is a reality to the followers of Jesus Christ. Paul knew it, and as he came back into this city, he wanted to remind these new followers of Jesus that tribulation would be part of their lot. Just so we get a little bit of the force of this little word must, we we need to understand it. It's a three-letter word in Greek. I just want you to see that there is no alternative. It's the same word that is used in John 3, 7 when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. There is no other way to eternal life but through new birth by the Holy Spirit. You must be born again. In another place in Scripture, it says the Son of Man must be lifted up. Beloved, there is no other way by which you and I can be saved but that Jesus died in our place. If Jesus did not die in our place, if he was not raised up on that cross, our salvation is nil and void. 
I guess it's null and void. He must be lifted up. In the same way, Scripture says Jesus must rise from the dead. If Jesus is still in the grave, our sins have not been dealt with. His sacrifice has not been accepted. Loved ones, that is why we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Because that reminds us that God accepted his perfect sacrifice on our behalf. He must be raised from the dead. In the same way, Paul says here, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Suffering's not all bad. Jesus said that he learned obedience through the things he suffered. Sometimes suffering accomplishes the work that God needs to do in us and in the lives of people around us. Suffering develops trust in God. Suffering produces character. Suffering results in holiness. And Paul says that suffering prepares us for glory. We get to the crown by way of the cross. Suffering is part and parcel of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Knowing your suffering, though, that God has not turned a blind eye, nor is he unaware of what you are suffering. We have many places in Scripture where it says God looked down upon the suffering of his people. I also have absolute confidence that neither tribulation And it goes on, but tribulation, which is the word here, shall separate me from the love of God. The fact that you suffer, loved ones, does not mean God does not love you. God loves you with an everlasting love. It is part of his way in your life. I wanted to sing, and I won't do that, just a verse of amazing grace, because we have sung it many times, but do we understand what we sing? Through many dangers toils and snares I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. Beloved, God will not abandon you to suffering and persecution. You see, loved ones, this is the stuff of growth groups. This is the stuff of women's Bible studies. This is the stuff of our youth studies. You cannot go it alone. There are times when every single one of us need to be strengthened. There are times when every single one of us needs to be encouraged. There are times when every single one of us needs to be reminded that tribulation and persecution is part of what it means of following following Jesus Christ. This is the stuff of Christian fellowship. And just as a side note, we have been overwhelmed by the response of people to our, overwhelmed is maybe too big a word, but we have had a great response to people wanting to get in growth groups. And they are supposed to start this week, and many of them will. But we still are looking for some homes and some leaders to accommodate the numbers of people that have signed up. So don't panic. You will get called. But that is a great problem to have. But that is telling me that people recognize they need help. They can't go it alone. And so Paul and Barnabas recognized this. Pastorally, these sheep needed to be cared for. The second emphasis that comes here, and this, by the way, helps us understand what church is about. The second emphasis, though, is an organizational concern. And here we have some insights into church structure. I know there are people who say, well, the church doesn't need structure. The church doesn't need organization. That's just, that's just human stuff. It's not. 
all authority comes from God, and God has even given us the general contours of structure within a church. Listen to some of the things that we see here. Because every church needs leadership. Nobody is indispensable in the church, but we do need leadership in the church. And I wonder if Paul and Barnabas had been thinking, you know, the churches have been existing for, for three, four, five months now, and I'm sure natural leaders have risen to the top. We need to go back and see how things are going in these churches. So notice just very quickly some things that they mentioned there. First of all, it says that leaders are in, selected with prayer and fasting. I think as a church, we need to learn from this and begin to practice this even more fervently. Particular as we come to, to March and April and May and we begin thinking of more deacons and more elders. Do we commit to prayer and fasting? It says that they selected leaders with prayer and fasting. Leadership is not about influence. It's not about business success. It's not about success in the community. Leadership is about character. Leadership is about the heart. And there can be people who are eminently qualified from an external perspective because of things they've accomplished, but they are terribly disqualified because of their character. And sometimes we need, all the times, we need God's insight to discern the difference. Remember, Jesus, before he selected the twelve disciples, spent a whole night in prayer. We ought to learn from the example of Jesus. Second thing that we find here is it says that they appointed elders in every church. Leaders are appointed. This may cause just a little bit of thinking amongst you, which is a good thing. But everywhere that I find in Scripture, I don't find a lot of strength for democratic-style government in churches. There is a place for congregational government and congregational input into decisions that are made. But everywhere I look on leadership, leaders are appointed. And we certainly see that here. We see that in Titus where Paul says to Titus, in all the churches I want you to appoint elders. We have the qualifications for them in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But nonetheless, it is, it is an appointment that is made by a body of people to lead the particular church. And notice here that it's also plural. There should be never a church that is led by a single individual, ever. I don't find that anywhere in Scripture. There is always a plurality of leaders. There's a plurality of deacons and a plurality of elders. There might be one who is, is, is among equals, the one who gives leadership. We have a chairman of our elders board, Rick Campbell, who's equal amongst us, but he happens to be the, the chairperson of that board. We have uh, Rob Gibbs, who is the chairperson of our deacons board, and he is the, the leader among equals in that group of people. But we always have a plurality of leadership. Notice also, he also says that he appointed elders in every church. I think this is a good reminder to us of local church government, of the fact that each church has unique responsibilities and, and unique um, characteristics and unique um, needs that are met by leaders that are raised up from within for that particular local congregation. It doesn't mean that there can't be place for presbyters and for overall leadership, but local leadership is the pattern of Scripture. And so they established leaders in every church. And then notice, finally, it says there that they commended them to Christ. Beloved, ultimately, the head of every church is Jesus Christ. And we ought not to lose sight of that. 
that as a body of Christ, we submit to the, to, to the leadership as we submit to Christ. We honor his authority. We honor his words. We honor his instruction. We honor his direction for us as a people. And as a church, we are commended leaders and all to the headship and leadership of Jesus Christ. We need leadership. We need organization. We need structure. The Holy Spirit recognized that and prompted Paul and Barnabas to go back into these churches and not only deal with the pastoral concerns, but deal with the organizational structural concerns. That's why Paul and Barnabas retraced their steps. And then finally, I love what verse 24 to 26 says, and we'll just briefly mention it today, but they basically come full circle. They're back now in the church of Antioch in Syria, which was the church from which their ministry had, had originated. They had been gone for probably about two years now. Maybe dribs and drabs of reports had come back to this church, but basically they had not been back for two years. And so it's amazing that they gather this church together and they start to chat with them. It says that they came back to the church in Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God. This again reminds me, as almost everything we've talked about this morning, church and following Christ is about community. It's about community. You can't go it alone. You can't be a lone ranger Christian in a community, and you can't be a lone ranger missionary. You need to have the backing of a local church. It says that this church had sent them out. and This church had commended them to the grace of God. So we need people behind us for accountability, for support, for prayer. And so they come back to this church that had behind them, been behind them in the ministry. And they also realized that they hadn't been commended in their own skills and abilities, in their own great organizational um, leadership abilities. They had been commended to the grace of God. We minister in the strength of God and only the strength of God. God goes before us and behind us. He's around us and above us. It's His grace that sustains us. His grace that goes with us as we go out to serve Him in this community and around the world. It's a beautiful reminder and a picture of the church as ascending church, keeping them accountable and committing them to the grace of God. What sort of struck me too, and I'll just kind of leave this with you to do. It says they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had started. No, for the work that they had fulfilled. There is great joy in accomplishing something. There is great joy in knowing the boundaries of what you're doing. So that at the end of it, you can assess and evaluate, have we accomplished what we started out to do? Have we made progress here? And they came back and there was great rejoicing for they had fulfilled the work that this church had sent them out to do. The last thing I want to leave with you is this one point here. What has God done through you and who have you told? They gathered the church together, and I just picture this amazing party. 
And I, I picture it going on for a few days and maybe into the week as they continue to gather. And they said, Paul and Barnabas, tell us stories. What about this guy that was healed, this, you know, this, this lame guy? What about you know, the persecution? What did it feel like to be stoned, Paul? What, what, did, you know, what, did, uh, what did it feel like to be persecuted? You know, what was it like walking from here to there? You know, what, did you, what did you love the most? Who, you know, who's the comfort that's... And, just like, and I'm sure they must have just had story after story after story about what God had done through them. I would love to see more stories. I'd love to see more stories shared from the pulpit and from here, but also stories shared amongst yourselves as you go for coffee and as you meet for fellowship and before you leave to just say, you know, this week, let me tell you what God did this week. I was talking with this person, you know, I was involved in that situation and God just moved in a way that just blew me away. You know, beloved, I can... Continue to have a growing passion that the gospel would go forth into all of Oceanside and that every single person that lives in Oceanside would have an opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ. That's 25,000 plus people. Can you imagine 25,000 stories? Some of them might be bad. I shared the gospel and they socked me in the side of the face. Some of them might be good. I shared the gospel and they dropped on their knees then and there and responded to Christ. And then everything in between. But I trust God in the months ahead for many, many stories of what God has done through people like you and me and our community. Let's turn to the Lord and pray.